Praise God. If you're joining us here in person, you'll see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be on your screen at home. But Joel 1, 13 through 20. Okay, this is God's word. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go and pass the night in sackcloth. Literally put it on like pajamas and go to bed wearing this. O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Let's pray. Father, we give you glory and we worship you and we thank you for this time when we can gather. It is so important that your people gather. And it is so important, Lord God, that when we gather, we don't focus our hearts around things going on in the world, things that we heard, the latest and greatest, but Lord, we focus our hearts around your word. We focus our hearts around you, Jesus. So Lord God, as we do that right now, please speak. Open this word to us and show us, Father, your will for us, especially in times of great crisis. We thank you, Father. This is all grace. This is why you speak. This is why, Father God, you guide us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well, we're continuing our series in the book of Joel, and right from the opening of this book, Joel gives an answer to one of the most painful and desperate questions that people ask in a time of crisis. And maybe you've asked this question. You probably have, if you faced a life-defining crisis. And what question are we talking about? Where's God? Okay, where is God? And I'm familiar with this question because I've asked this question more than once at different points in my life as I faced tremendous crises in my life. But where is God? Right? Where is God? And no doubt the Israelites in Joel's time, they were asking the same question because they were facing a great crisis. It had crashed upon their heads out of nowhere. But basically, a locust plague swept through their nations. I've already described what this might have looked like, but millions Maybe billions of locusts descended upon Israel out of a clear sky. I mean, it literally came out of nowhere. It began to eat all the crops in the land, and the majority of their food supply was gone within a very short time. And because of this locust plague, the nation was on the verge of a terrible famine. And famine, I mean, we're not very acquainted with it. Famine for us is when Costco doesn't open up on time, right? We're like, uh, what's going on? But famine in ancient times were terrible. Not only in biblical times, but if you were to read about famines throughout history, I mean, they are horrendous times. I mean, these are times when even people eat one another. Cannibalism, that's when it started. Children go missing. I mean, these are horrible, horrible times where people starve literally to death. So many were facing starvation. Many were going to suffer and die. 
So facing this kind of devastation, it would have been very natural for people to ask, where's God? Where is God? I remember hearing different testimonies during the Holocaust, but a lot of the Jewish people were crying out and asking that same question. Where is God? And one famous rabbi even said, the Holocaust killed God in my heart. Any sense and awareness of God, it killed. This thing, this event killed God. And so what he was saying is, I don't have an answer. I don't know where God is. But where is God during these times? Well, in scripture, God has an answer. But Joel had an answer. And it was a clear and even unexpected answer. And basically, this is what he said. God is not far from our crisis. In fact, he brought it. But that's not all. But he is right here in the midst of our crisis. And he's speaking. And he's working. How many of you guys know that? But when you are facing tremendous things in life, and I'm talking about even in the world that affect all of us, God is not far, but he is here in the very midst, speaking and working. Whether he brought it directly into our lives or allowed it, but it has been appointed by God, and he is working through it. There is a reason for it. And I've been saying this every week, but this is grace. Amen? This is God's grace. So God is speaking and working in your crisis, and it is God's grace. And so so what are we talking about? Well, first, God spoke in their crisis. The very first line in the book of Joel is what? The word of the Lord that came to Joel. You don't just skip over these openings. It's very important. But the word of the Lord came to Joel in the midst of what? Crisis. So in the hour of their greatest need and greatest desperation, what did God do? He spoke. See, he wasn't far away. He spoke. And he gave them his word. Again, it was grace. And this is the same grace that God gives to us when a life-defining crisis hits our lives. So again, please, don't be wondering, where's God, right? Where is God? God is speaking, but we just need to simply hear. See, God doesn't leave us all to ourselves in the pitch dark, groping around for answers, but rather he tells us exactly what we need to know in a time of crisis. Now again, it's up to us whether we want to hear God and receive what he has to say, but he is speaking. In fact, he's already spoken in his word. And what did God say to the Israelites in their crisis? Well, through Joel, God gave them a theologically rich answer to the question, why is this happening? But Joel's answer, or God's answer through Joel, is this crisis was the day of the Lord. It was the day that God himself had brought upon his own people. And the day of the Lord, this is a major theme in scripture. This is very important. We need to understand this. We'll look at it more in the weeks ahead. But the day of the Lord is this theme that runs throughout the Bible. It started with the Old Testament prophets, and then it really came to fruition in the New Testament. The ultimate meaning of this day of the Lord comes in the New Testament. And for now, we can just know this. The day of the Lord is a day of God's judgment on everyone who is rebelling against God and is outside of God's redeemed people. So it's different things to different people, but it is a day of judgment for people who are rebelling against God. But at the very same time, the day of the Lord is an amazing day. It is a day of salvation, a day of blessing for those who are in God's community of redeemed people. See, it's different things to different people. And this phrase, day of the Lord, can refer to both the immediate crisis in front of you, in front of the Israelites, and it can also refer to the final day when God comes to bring an end to this present age. 
We know now as Christians that this is when Jesus returns. But the final day, when God brings an end to the age, and Joel used the day of the Lord in both ways. He says, see this locust plague? See this famine that's about to hit us? This is the day of the Lord. And by the way, this should remind you of the final day of the Lord that's coming. And so Joel used it in both ways. So the day of the Lord is a very important theme. And when the Israelites heard this phrase, you know what they would have thought? Oh, I know what this is about. The day of the Lord is a day of blessing, salvation. Why? Because we're God's people. They would have for sure thought that. And here's Joel's message. Okay, this is the word that God gave them in crisis. No. Because you're living like everybody else, right? Like all the nation's rebellion, you're living just like them. The day of the Lord has come upon you. You're talking about the locusts. The day of the Lord is here and it's a day of judgment. Okay, that was God's word. So that would have utterly shocked the Jews. Okay, that would have blown them away. Again, because they're thinking, What? We're God's people. How can that be? You know what this would be like? It'd be the same thing as somebody who grew up their whole lives going to church. They called themselves Christian their whole lives. Why? Because my mom and dad are Christian. They called me a Christian. And yet, all the while, they're living just like the world, and then crisis hits their lives. And then they go to a church. Maybe they like the pastor's message, and then they talk to the pastor afterwards. And the pastor... This would take a lot of guts to say this to a newcomer. I don't know if I could. But the pastor would say, oh, thank you for sharing about your crisis. Well, this is the day of the Lord. And it's come to you, not as a day of salvation, but of judgment. Okay, that would be utterly shocking, right? It's like, what? What? But I'm a Christian. The Bible says for Christians, there are no judge. There is no more judgment. Right? We're saved by grace. And all of that is true. And yet, all the while, that person is living just like the world like people who don't know Christ. And so here's the point. Somebody might call themselves Christian. Okay, they might even go to a church and act as if they're a Christian, and yet all the while, their lives, Monday through Saturday, they're living just like the world. And so their lives speak louder than their words. And so what their lives are saying is that they are not true Christians who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what their lives are saying. Or at least their lives are revealing that they're not living like one. Not living like a true Christian. And for people like that, when the day of the Lord comes, and I'm talking about even crises here and now, when that day of the Lord comes, Joel says, it's not a day of salvation and blessing, it's a day of judgment. And so I believe this was Joel's message to the Jews in the Old Testament. And it was a shocking message. And yet, even this shocking message, this word was God's grace. Okay, so I want you to understand this. This is God's grace. And that's because there was something greater God was doing. And so this brings us to the other thing that I mentioned. God is working, right? In a time of crisis, God isn't just speaking, but he is working. So what is God doing? Well, we saw this last week, but God is stripping all the things in our lives that bring judgment upon our lives away. God is stripping things away. Like the graphic image of the locusts that come down upon a field of crops and everything is stripped down, right? Even the bark on trees are stripped away. People have said that who have seen locust plagues. All the bark is even gone. In the same way, God is just stripping everything down. I'm talking about false things, idolatrous things, things that we place higher above God, things that we trust and hope in, 
our security, anything that is not God. God is stripping that all away. I'm talking about objects of desire that cause us to stumble. God is stripping all those things away. Again, we saw this last week with the drunkard and the farmer and the minister and the elderly. But all different types of people living different kinds of lives, God strips things away. And so this is God's work in a crisis. And God is working continuously. Why? To reveal. Okay, what is he revealing? The way we're living. See, that, that's the great thing about sin is that because of sin, we don't know the things that are going on. Sin blinds. Sin blinds. And so God, because he loves us, he has to take an extreme step to reveal what we're blind to. He'll reveal things. But it's kind of like if you have a computer full of viruses and there's no software that can deal with all these viruses, what's the only solution? You need to wipe the hardware, right? You need to wipe out the hard drive and do a total reset. Well, this is what I'm talking about, but this is the work that God is doing in a crisis. He is bringing a total reset to our lives. So this is just a means to an end. But what is that end? Okay, is it to just wipe our lives clean, to do a total reset? Partly, but what is the end goal? Well, the end goal is not to judge us and to destroy us, but is to have us return back to him. So this is the whole point of Joel's book, is to return back to God. God wants us to return back to him. And so this is always the goal, brothers and sisters. Okay, anytime you face a crisis in your life, you don't need to wonder, where's God? Okay, if you come to me and ask that, I'll tell you where God is. He's right in your life right now. In fact, the very crisis in your life is God working. He's speaking. And you don't have to wonder, well, what's he doing? Because I'll tell you right away, he's doing this. He wants you to return back to him. I don't know you. I don't know what's going on in your life. But I do know this. The word of God says, return to God. Go back to God. That is always the goal for a crisis that God will sovereignly appoint into your life. He wants you to return back to him. And so today what I want to do is I want to begin to look at what this turning back to God looks like. And we're not going to get through all the points today, but in the second chapter of Joel's uh, book, I'm sorry, the first chapter of Joel's book, the second half, we see different ways that Joel talks about returning back to God. And Joel calls it a calling upon the Lord in the day of crisis. But it is a calling upon the Lord. Joel said in chapter 1, verse 19, to you, O Lord, I call. Yeah, I call. And please, don't misunderstand. This is not a quiet call while drinking coffee in the morning, okay, reading your Bible. Okay, this is not that kind of call. But Joel makes it clear. This is more like a desperate cry for God. Well, inside a furnace, he mentions things like fire. He talks about calamity. He says, wail, mourn, call out to God. Okay, this is the kind of calling we're talking about. And if you've ever faced a life-defining crisis, and I think most people have, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, there are more, no more trying to figure things out. Okay, there's no more talking to people to try to make things happen. Okay, there's no more planning, spinning, manipulating your situation. Okay, there's no more of that. But if you have reached the end of yourselves because of this crisis, then all you have left is a cry for God. Okay, it is a deep, agonizing cry for God. And this is what we need to understand, but all returning back to God begins here. Okay, until you reach that point where all these things don't work anymore and you are just crying out to God in the depths of your heart, you aren't, you're, you're not really returning back to God. 
But this is where all return back to God begins. So here, this is where Joel begins his book. But the Israelites were called to return back to God. And in this second half of the first chapter, Joel lays out four different ways that we must cry out. And like I said earlier, we're not going to get through all of them. We'll look at the first two and then the next two next week. But there are four different ways that Joel talks about crying out to God. So here's the first way. It's a cry of repentance. It's a cry of repentance. Look at verse 13. Joel called the ministers to lead the way in repentance. Okay, this was what God called them to do. They were to be the example. They represented Israel to God. So they needed to lead the way in repentance. But look at verse 13. God, through Joel, said, Put on sackcloth and lament. O priests, wail. O ministers of the altar, go in. Pass the night in sackcloth. O ministers of my God. So here it mentions sackcloth twice. And basically it's like a potato bag. If you've ever touched the potato bag, it's very rough. So in ancient times, people would put on this really rough material, take off their soft clothing, put on this rough clothing. And it was a symbol of repentance, very clear. And so clearly, this is talking about repentance. It's a cry of repentance. And I want you to notice how true repentance is an inward condition of the heart that rises up from your heart and it goes out through your behaviors. This is true repentance. But true repentance rarely stays hidden. It never stays just inside where nobody can see. But it always starts from deep within your heart and then it rises up and it goes out through your behaviors. That is true repentance. And so if you're going through true repentance, then the people closest to you, your family members, maybe your closest friends, they're going to know, man, what's going on in your life? There's something going on. And what's going on is you are repenting. There is this deep thing that is moving your heart and working through your behaviors. You see a clear picture of this in Matthew 18 with the tax collector that went up to the temple. You know the story that Jesus told. But there were two men who went up to the temple, the tax collector and the Pharisee. And it says here that the tax collector, Matthew 18, 13, the tax collector stood at a distance, unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven. Instead, he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So do you notice that? The tax collector went up and he did what? He lowered his head. He couldn't even lift it up to heaven. And then he did what? He beat his breast. And so that wasn't for show. I mean, the other man, the Pharisee, everything he did was for show. But this tax collector, what was that? That was true repentance. See, it's something that's moving in the heart. It is a heart condition that rises up and then goes out through your behaviors. And so this is what Joel was calling the priest to do. He wasn't just saying, hey, go do some religious things because we're in trouble. He was saying, repent. And how are you going to repent? Have a certain heart condition that shows in your outward behaviors. The people around you, they're going to see it. You're going to actually be the example. And so what condition of the heart are we talking about? Okay, what does your heart look like when you are in true repentance? Again, this is the first step to coming back to God. Okay, this is one of the marks of crying out to God. What kind of a heart do you have? Well, in order to answer that, I want to look at what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Okay, this is his Sermon on the Mount. But he uses a lot of the same language that Joel is using. Maybe Jesus was thinking about Joel when he preached this. I mean, all of this came from Jesus. He is the word. 
But he uses similar language. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's similar, right? Wail, mourn. And so here, these are the first Beatitudes. Or I'm sorry, there's actually one more verse. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So these are the first few Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And many people, they understand these Beatitudes as a progression of how somebody goes from a non-believer into a believer. Okay, how they enter the kingdom of God. And here it all starts with repentance. So these first few Beatitudes, Jesus is talking about repentance. And so what did Jesus say? Okay, what's the heart condition that you need to have in true repentance? First is being poor in spirit. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they're going to be the ones who are saved. They're the true Christians. But what does that mean? What is being poor in spirit? Well, it's basically recognizing that you're utterly bankrupt. Okay, poor, bankrupt, right? And what is bankrupt? You have no more. You have no more resources. You have no more money. We're talking about spiritually here. You have nothing to offer to God. You have nothing that you can give to God to be accepted by him. You are utterly bankrupt in being righteous before a holy God. It is recognizing that there is nothing in my life that I can point to that will let me come into the kingdom of God. You are utterly bankrupt. This is being poor in spirit. This is why people say the door to heaven, the door into the kingdom of God is what? A very low door. It's a lowly door. Jesus said, I am the door. It is a very lowly door. And the reason why is because you can only go through it on your knees. So if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, if you're going to have this true repentant heart, it begins here. But you recognize I'm utterly bankrupt spiritually. I have nothing that I could bring and offer to God to be righteous before him, to go into heaven. It is a low door. And this is why the proud who are not able to bend their knees, they never enter in. They can never enter in. And so true repentance begins with being poor in spirit. It begins with the mind, but it goes down into the heart. It's a clear understanding of your true spiritual condition before God. We have nothing. We bring nothing. We can do nothing for God to receive us. I'm utterly bankrupt. And people who can understand this, they are poor in spirit. So true repentance begins here, but it's more than that. But Jesus also mentions mourning. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And here, what kind of a mourning are we talking about? Okay, a lot of the Jews hearing this, maybe they thought, well, we mourn over Rome, oppressing our nation. We mourn over our economic situation. It's been hard these days, Jesus. There's a lot of mourning happening. But what was Jesus referring to? Okay, was he referring to a losing of our blessings, our comforts? maybe losing our reputation because somebody found out about our sin? Well, partly, but not really. Jesus was talking about mourning over your sin, mourning over the things that displease God. It is a deep distaste in what used to be tasteful. I used to like this. It was very tasty to me, but now it is utterly disgusting. So there's a fundamental change in spiritual appetites. Because we see our sin for what it really is. This is the mourning that Jesus is talking about. 
But the moment you, ha- you begin to see your sin for what it is and you begin to change in your attitude, your, your taste, your appetite for it, then now you're mourning. You're mourning. You know, I remember this story that Malcolm Muggeridge told. He's a British journalist. I believe he already passed away. But he was very well-known, very witty, wrote many, many things. And he shared this story one time of when he was in India. He was there as a journalist working. And one night he said he came out of his hotel and he went into the river to take a swim. And then a little ways off down the river, he saw the silhouette of a woman, you know, in the moonlight. And she was bathing. And in that moment, he was very honest and he confessed saying, you know what, this temptation just grabbed me. And so he began to swim towards that woman, maybe thinking that he can have an encounter with her, a sexual encounter. And so here he is swimming towards her. And then as he got very close to her, she turned around. And in that moment, this is what he saw in his own words. She was old and hideous. Her skin was wrinkled. And worst of all, she was a leper. This is why she was out there all alone at night bathing. She didn't want to be seen by other people. She was a leper. And then, and then Muggeridge said, this creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. And in that moment, he was disgusted utterly. He turned away immediately, and then he said, what a dirty, lecherous woman. But Muggeridge, he was very honest. But then he said, in a moment after that, he realized something else, though, that shocked him even more. He said, it wasn't the woman who was lecherous, but it was my heart. In other words, she's not the one who was repulsive. It was me, right? It was my heart. My heart was repulsive. He's swimming towards her, thinking I'm going to be doing something with her. And so this is the realization that Muggeridge had, and this is the realization that everybody needs to have. He have their sin. But this is the person who is mourning over their sin. You see, see, see how profound this is? Repentance is more than, oh, gosh, I did something bad. I feel kind of bad about it. God, please forgive me. It's so much deeper than that. This is why Jesus, when he first came here, he said, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, if you listen to what I'm saying and respond, your whole life will be transformed, flipped upside down, inside out. You will become a new creation. Why? Because repentance is profound. It is a deep, profound heart condition that begins to rise up from the depth of your heart, begins to move out through the behaviors of your body. And it is a certain condition of mourning over your sin. Okay, that's the condition that begins to come out, up and out. You are deeply moved and mourning over your sin. Okay, you see God in his holiness. You see Jesus' love, and you're pierced by that. It's kind of like in light of God, who he is, it's like a mirror comes up and you see your face. And you're like, oh my gosh. Just like Muggeridge. I mean, he was disgusted by the woman, but in that brief moment after, he saw his own face. That's what he's saying. He saw his own heart. This is what's truly repulsive. And he's a Christian. And so this is how you mourn over your sin. This is the mourning that Jesus and Joel were talking about. Again, Joel said, put on sackcloth and lament. Oh, priest, wail. And a part of that mourning was, of course, because they couldn't worship God anymore. We already saw that in the first half of chapter 1. Because in the worship of the temple, they used the fruit of the land. They had grain and different crops that they would offer to God. All of that was gone. They couldn't worship God. And so, yes, that was appalling. Yes, that was worth mourning over. But if you end there, if you just stop there, and that's mourning, 
to you, then it is so shallow. The understanding of mourning is so much deeper than that. Because Joel wasn't just talking about, oh, yeah, mourn that you can't have church. And during COVID, some of us were mourning, right? We're like, oh, I can't see my friends. Right? I want to go to church. And there was a level of mourning. But if we ended there, then we're missing the much deeper thing that God is trying to do, the deeper work. See, even during COVID, I believe it was the same thing. God was trying to show us a picture of who we are. And he was saying, yes, mourn over these things that you can't gather, you can't worship me with one another, but mourn over something even deeper. Okay, take this opportunity to look at where you are. And so Joel was saying, mourn over your sin. Priest, wail, put on sackcloth. Okay, mourn over your sin and the sins of the people. This is why the day of the Lord is here. Okay, mourn, grieve. Again, it is a deep heart condition that begins to rise up and then go out. So this is true repentance, and there's so much more that I could talk about, but I want to look at one more mark of true repentance. There is so much more we can say about true repentance. But here's one more mark. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So here, Jesus is still talking about the condition of the heart that will take somebody from non-believer to believer, from not in the kingdom to entering the kingdom. And so here he says, true repentance will always bring change in your appetites, in your desires. This is what really begins to show as it moves up and then out, is it begins to show in the things you want. There's a complete reorientation in what you desire. So what are we talking about? Well, to put it bluntly, before true repentance, you want sin. The things that are not in line with God and his word is, you know, I, I, I like it. I want it. But now you want righteousness. You know, I heard one pastor say it like this, but true repentance wants more than deliverance from hell. Okay, this could be eternal hell or hell on earth. It wants more than deliverance from hell. It wants deliverance from sin. How do you know you're a true Christian? Because you don't want sin anymore. Do you keep on sinning? Yeah. I keep sinning every day. But do I completely hate it and just get disgusted by it? Yeah. The true Christian is disgusted by their sin. I don't want this anymore. I'm a weak person. I'm desperately in need of God every day, and I fall into it every day. Over time, it should get less and less. But I hate it. I genuinely hate my sin. That should be the cry of the true Christian who's repenting. So they don't want just deliverance from things that they don't want in life, the hell on earth, but they want deliverance from sin. I don't want my sin. I hate this sin. So true repentance is a total change in our appetites and desires. Here's another way to say it. True repentance is a gift from God. The Bible talks clearly about maybe God will grant repentance to the Gentiles the New Testament church talked a lot about that. Pray so that maybe the Gentiles may be granted repentance. See, it's a gift that God has to give you. But once that gift comes, here's another thing, another way you could say it. It's a change in your will, the volition, the things that drive your life. It's the same thing as desires. But the thing that drives my life, the things that I'm going after, my will, that changes. Okay, that's how you know you're a true Christian. This is true repentance. So the things that you were willing to go after at one point, you don't, you don't go after them anymore. The things that you will to go after have changed. 
Again, you wanted the world before, but now you want Christ. Even if you have to give up things in the world, I want Christ. Again, doesn't mean that you're going to be like, woo, Jesus, every day, right? I'm so close to you. No. There are going to be many times when you're far from Jesus. But deep in your heart, Jesus, I want you. I want you. And if this crisis in my life will draw me closer to you, then praise the Lord. Right? You give, you take away. Praise the Lord. You know, yesterday I had a great time with my family, and I was talking to my brother. He actually um, drove over a massive puddle during this hailstorm. We had this, like, 10-minute hailstorm where we were at. We were at my parents'. And my brother was out driving, and then something ripped under his car. And so we had to get into his car and go to the mechanic. And during that little drive, I believe God gave it to us because we were talking. It was a beautiful thing. (laughs) We got to talk as his car was being repaired. And I remember my brother said this. I was so touched. But he's like, you know, uh, Roy, yeah, there are some things right now in my life that I'm really praying for. And I don't see them coming. But he was basically saying, but it's okay. Because Jesus is your treasure, right? Right? Jesus is the treasure. I'm like, that's right. That's right, Danny. Jesus is the treasure. And so I was so moved and so like blessed to hear that from my brother. He's like, you got it, right? Is I want Jesus. So this is the utter reorientation of your heart. Right? Jesus said, you go from hungering and thirsting after unrighteousness. Now you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And just in case, somebody might go, well, this sounds awfully like work salvation. Okay, everything you're saying right now, aren't you saying like you got to be like this and do this to go to heaven? And to that, I want to remind you of what Jesus said earlier. Only the poor in spirit enter the kingdom. Okay, I'm not saying do X, Y, Z to be saved and go to heaven. I'm saying you need to utterly recognize I have nothing. I bring nothing. All I bring to God is my sin. And now that God has granted me repentance, I hate this sin. It's the proof that you're truly repenting. I detest this sin, the sin that I do every day. I abhor it utterly. I don't enjoy it one bit. Maybe for a splitting second I like it, but I, I, I utterly detest it. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not saying you do this to earn your way to heaven. But rather, this is the true mark that you are repenting. That God has granted you salvation. And so, please, brothers and sisters, I want to make it very clear. Okay, this is where true coming back to God begins. See, this is a message you don't hear oftentimes, I think, in churches these days. Not to say that we're anything special. I think a lot of churches are catching on. They're preaching a similar message. But it is not about, oh, God has grace upon my life, and I'm just going to trust in that until the day I die, and something, somehow, it'll all work out. No, There are clear evidences you're going to see of genuine salvation here and now. Have you repented in your heart? Do you detest your sin utterly? Every day as you fall into sin, you say, I hate this. I utterly hate this. And I want Christ. And I struggle. So Jesus, have grace upon me. That is the true Christian. There is an utter reorientation of your heart. And you can't hide that. That's going to come up out of your heart and through your behaviors. It's going to show. That's why Jesus said you can't light a lamp and hide it under a bushel. It's going to shine. And if it doesn't, you're not a Christian. This is where all returning back to God begins. So is that clear, brothers and sisters? This is why God brings crisis into our life. He is stripping things down, saying, look at the things that you're doing. You're deceiving yourself. This is game. This is just a big game to you. I'm going to show you the true state of your heart. Come back to me. This is God's grace, brothers and sisters.
So again, if you're wondering where's God, I'm telling you, he's right in the middle of your crisis and he's doing a profound work, maybe more than ever before. And you don't have to wonder what is God doing. I'll tell you what he's doing. He is stripping things away. He is revealing your heart so that you can mourn, you can be poor in spirit and you can come back to him. This is true repentance. So this is the first step in turning back to God. And so we need to ask ourselves, is my heart there? Where's your heart? Because I don't assume in a room like this that everyone is with the Lord. I'm glad you're here, but I don't assume that you're with the Lord. And so where is your heart? Is your heart prepared and ready to cry out to God? Right? This is what Joel is talking about, crying out to God. This is the first step of coming back to God, crying out in repentance. Is your heart ready to do that? Well, even that can be a gift from God. God will enable us to do that sometimes through crisis. So that's the first thing. But here's the second thing, a cry in unison. There's a cry in unison. So look at the second part, or I'm sorry, the first part of verse 14. Joel said to the priests, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So here Joel is calling the priests not only to repent of their own sins, but the sins of the people of Israel. And then he said, call a meeting. Right? Don't just go to your room by yourself and pray to God and cry out to God. Yes, you can do that. But call a meeting. You guys are the ministers. You guys are the spiritual leaders. Come together. So here he said, gather the elders. This could be the elderly, like we said last time. Or it could be spiritual leaders. Probably both. But call the elders and call everyone. Call all the inhabitants in the land. And he says here, very important, call a solemn assembly. A solemn assembly. I remember one time there was this big gathering in Pasadena. They rented out the stadium, I think the Rose Bowl, and they put a flyer out saying solemn assembly. I forgot why. It was so important. I don't remember. <laughs> but it was like for like something regarding like some law that was being passed in California. It might have been the whole uh, gay marriage bill. I think it might have been that. But, but they called a solemn assembly. But what is that? Well, it's a time to gather, not to celebrate, not to fellowship, but a time to gather to cry out to God. Maybe even fast. I think that one assembly happening here in SoCal, they included fasting. They were fasting for a few days together. But it is a time to cry out to God together. And so aren't there certain kinds of crises that rise to that level? There are, right? There are different kinds of crises that break out in our lives that rise to that level. It calls for that. But there are certain crises where people sense, I'm not strong enough. I can't face this alone. And so this is what Joel recognizes. You guys don't have enough strength to do it on your own. Call everyone. Gather together. You know, I remember back when 9-11 happened, I was actually an adult. A lot of you guys weren't born yet or you're little kids, but I was an adult. I was in seminary. And I remember when I saw 9-11 happen, but it was uh, on 9-11. And I remember I was in Carl's Jr. eating breakfast, about to go to seminary, my class. And then I saw it on the news. And it was utterly shocking. It was a devastating thing to see. It's like, oh my gosh, what is going on? And I remember shortly after that, all around the country, people started gathering together. Okay, if you weren't around during that time, read the history books, but you'll, you'll hear about that. A lot of churches began to open the doors on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and people started gathering together. 
especially in New York. I remember there were testimonies of pastors in New York saying even non-believers found their way into our church and began to meet together with us in these solemn assemblies. So there are different crises in people's lives where it just rises to that level. It calls for that. I think the most recent example was Uvalde, the shooting in Texas, where basically a man, a young man, went into an elementary school and killed dozens of little children and also two teachers. But shortly after that, the very next day, the city gathered in a solemn assembly. I don't know if it was the next day or a few days after, but they gathered where they sang Amazing Grace. They had people come up to the podium and pray and cry out to God. This is what we're talking about. There is a solemn assembly. But it's not only for things that rise at the national level, but this can even be for people who have crises within a church. Right? Crisis that breaks out within a church. I remember years ago, this is when I was still at the church in Los Angeles that sent us out. But I remember our pastor, his mother was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and she had a very short time to live. And I remember immediately, I mean, people just kind of knew. We already sensed we got to really pray and people just called an assembly. And it was the most packed I ever saw the prayer room. I mean, it was a good-sized room, you know, maybe about a quarter of this room. And it was packed. I mean, you couldn't even, like, really walk in. People were just kind of spilling out into the hallway. But they gathered this solemn assembly in this single prayer room to cry out for the pastor's mother. Just crying out, begging God, have mercy. Give her faith, give her peace, give her comfort, heal her. And leaving it in God's hands. But this can even happen at the CG level, right? It doesn't even have to be at the church-wide. But even in your own community group, if you go to one and you hear that a person is having extreme crisis in their life, call an assembly, right? Don't just tell them, oh, we'll pray for you. But gather together. Call a meeting. Don't wait until the following week. Call one immediately and begin to cry out to God. See, there is power. I mean, you know this. I don't have to convince you, hopefully. But there is power when like-minded hearts come together. I'm talking about hearts that are mourning. They're broken. There is that sense of poorness, of spirit. And they are crying out to God. We don't have any more tricks, God. There are no more plans or manipulations or spinning. We have nothing left. All we have is you. We are crying out to you. This is what Joel is talking about. You know, this past summer, I, re- I remember uh, trying to teach my children how to light a fire. You can ask my son Joshua, but we went camping in San Diego. And I said, hey, kids, I'm going to teach you how to light a fire, okay? And I was very confident. I had the wood. I had the shred of paper. Um, I didn't have kindling. I told the kids to go gather it. They're the ones who reminded me. They went and got it, and I had the matches. And then about after 15 minutes of trying, the sun was starting to set. I started getting more and more nervous, you know? I'm like, <laughs> like lighting many, many matches in a row. And I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? And my wife is like, you better light that soon. Sun's almost gone. And you know what I realized? I had the wood in a beautiful teepee shape, right, Joshua? It was like a beautiful teepee. I had it all set up. But then I finally realized after about 15, 20 minutes what was wrong. The teepee was too far apart, right? All the laws were only touching at the very top and nothing near the bottom. And so I brought all those logs closer together. I mean, it didn't even matter at this point whether it was a TP or not. I just brought them all together on top of the kindling and lit it, and boom, fire, right? There was a fire. And so this is what we're talking about. But even if we're connected at the very top, right? Oh, we all go to the promised church, or we're all part of this group. But the rest of your lives are not touching, and someone's facing a crisis? How much power really is there? Gather, come together. 
right? Call an assembly, a solemn assembly. You're not getting together to hang out and eat some, you know, boba. But you're gathering together in order to call, uh, call out to God, to cry out to God. And so call that assembly. Okay, this is exactly what Jesus encouraged the believers to do. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. And there it is you all. It will be given to you all. Seek and you, you all, will find. Knock and it will be open to you all. You all. Right? Max, how do you say it? Y'all? <laughs> Where's Max? Max has that slight Texas accent. But y'all, right? Ask, it'll be given to y'all. <laughs> Seek and y'all will find. Well, no, this is that serious though. Jesus is saying, all of you, you all gather. You all gather. And guess what? After that teaching, the apostles said, yes, Lord. And they obeyed. And so later when the New Testament church was finally birthed, there was a big conflict that broke out in the early church. Had to do with like feeding the widows, the Grecian Hebrew widows were being ignored. All this stuff was happening. And then what did the apostles say? Acts 6. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer. Okay, don't, don't just picture Peter going into his closet by himself. What did he say? We, us leaders together as a group, we will pray together. We will devote ourselves to prayer together and to the ministry of the word. And so the apostles modeled it, and then the early church caught it as well. The early church, the regular believers. But when Peter was arrested and put in prison, what happened? They called a prayer meeting. They gathered together. Acts 4.23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported, they meaning the apostles, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They called a prayer meeting. They all came together and said, we are going to cry out to God. Right? This is a crisis. It has stripped things and revealed things in our hearts. We are mourning not only the situation but the sin. We are desperate for God. We are poor in spirit. We have nothing to offer God. We cry out. We cry out together. Amen? And I love what it says, but later in Acts 4 it says, and the Lord heard and there was an earthquake. There was an earthquake. So praying together is vital to releasing God's power in our lives and in the church and in the nation. Okay, this, is, this is worth giving your life for, brothers and sisters. You know, I'm encouraged how across the world there are increasingly more and more 24-7 prayer churches and prayer groups that are popping up everywhere. But literally, these churches, they pray 24-7. They pray day and night. I've actually been to one of these gatherings but they pray nonstop and worship nonstop, and they, they understand. Okay, this is worth giving your life to. Okay, God hears when his people gather together to pray. He releases enormous power, enormous power. So before we close, let me ask this question, but where is praying together for you in your list of priorities? Again, this is just another mark of your heart that is crying out to God. Right? You see this crisis. You are utterly poor in spirit. Nothing you can bring to God. You are mourning over what God has revealed, your sin. You are in repentance. Okay, that's repentance. 
And then now it moves up and out to what? Let's pray together, guys. Let's all come together. And so I love how the Lord does not leave us on our own, but he is so gracious. And so I know, I know times are difficult. Okay, we're living in a very unstable world. And so please, okay, please take note of these things. Okay, the Lord gives all of these instructions as guidance for when that day comes. Okay, so that you will know what to do. Amen? Okay, you will know how God is leading you. Let's pray. Father God, we want to come before the Lord right now and we want to come before you. And we want to humble ourselves and we want to say, Lord, Lord, we need you. Lord, I need you. And Lord, sometimes it's hard to have my heart be in that place of true mourning and repentance. But Lord God, I ask that you will please grant it. And not only to me, but to our church, grant it to everyone here. In other words, give it as a free gift, a spirit of repentance, Lord. And that comes as we look at who you are, Jesus. And the life you lived and the love that you had for all of us. Okay, this is where repentance really comes from. And even then, if we don't still, we still don't see, if we still don't have the heart condition to repent, then you will bring other things into our lives to bring us to that place. And this is all your work. So Lord God, we don't want to resist your work, but we want to believe and trust in you. Please, Lord. As your word says, the days are very evil. So make the most of opportunity. If you have ears to hear, today is the day of salvation. Today, hear the Lord. Today. So help us, Father, to come back to you. Help us to return to you, Lord. We give you all the glory. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's just come before the Lord. As we do every Sunday, we're going to respond to God's word. But let's just, I just want us to respond to that question earlier of where's your heart right now? Is your heart in that place ready to cry out to him in repentance? If it's not, then ask God. Can you please help me? Can you please bring my heart to that place of crying out to you, of coming back to you? But let's just come before the Lord. Get this between you and the Lord. Thank you, Father. We worship you.
Lord, that you would give us a heart, that you would grant repentance, that you would give us a heart that mourns over our sin. Please, Lord God, we do not mourn over our sin. You know, many of us in this room, I believe, we have grown up in this culture. We have heard this message. We have believed in this message. And it is an utter hindrance to you coming back to the Lord. But that message that repeatedly tells us again and again and again, believe in yourself. Have confidence in yourself. You're better than this. Don't let anyone push you down. And so everything in your life is about that. Of climbing a little higher, having a little bit more notches on your belt than the other person, of showing others who you really are, pumping yourself up, gathering things around in your life to make you look a certain way, feel a certain way. And it is utterly, that is, that is a message from hell. That is utterly in contradiction to Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. You have nothing. You bring nothing. You offer nothing to God for the most important thing, which is eternal life. a righteousness that never fades we have nothing and this is why so many people are unable to come to God and have true repentance so Father God I pray and ask oh God please break Break that spirit of this age. Break it, oh God. Your door is indeed a lowly door. It's so low, you have to crawl to get through it. We have to put our noses into the dirt on the ground. Not because you make us grovel but just out of simple acknowledgement of reality. I'm a hopeless sinner. What, what do I have that can possibly earn your favor, God? So yes, Lord, thank you for stripping all this stuff away so that I can see that now. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Okay, this is the person who begins to cry out to God, truly, and sincerely from the depths of their heart, you will cry out to God. So God, I pray for that. I pray for that to happen in our hearts. That we would be a church that cries out to God. There are so many churches that don't pray. They don't cry out to God because they're all about being the best, the cleverest, the most trendy, the most cutting edge. We are the best church. Look at our church. Look at who we are. And it's all about that. And so they don't cry out to you. Because they are not poor in spirit. Even as a church, they can have that false spirit. And so, Lord God, I pray that that would not be us. 
please. We're not above that. We can utterly be that. So, Lord God, please, let us not be that. But, Lord, even as a church, we want to be poor in spirit. What can we offer, Lord? We are your salt and your light. We are your ambassadors. It would be a joke if you hadn't said it. It would be an utter joke. So, Father God, please have mercy on us as a, as a church as well so that we can truly begin to cry out to you out of the depths of our hearts as a church. God, we're truly hopeless. We just don't know it yet because we just see what is not real. So, Lord God, thank you. Thank you. We give you all the glory. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Let's rise for final worship.